Well, what do you think that the church should be known for? What should the church be known for? Jesus gave an answer to this question in a couple of different ways. Um, in Matthew chapter five, he says, talking to his followers, people who follow him, that's what the church is, followers of Jesus. He said, you are the light of the world. So let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and then give glory to your father in heaven. He says, you should be known for good works. You should be known for having a light that shines. The world's a dark place full of lots of evil. Be a group of people who do good. In another place in the gospels, Jesus has gathered his closest followers together. He washed their feet. This is in John chapter 13. And then he says, I'm going to give you a new command now. Just like you've seen me serve you, this is what you are also to do for others. And then he says this, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my followers. If you love one another. Jesus says, here's what the church, here's what my followers, here's what we should be known for. Love and good works. We should love one another. We should sacrifice for one another. We should serve one another. And we should do good works in the world so that our light shines. That's what the church is supposed to be known for. How are we doing? How do we help each other grow into these qualities? How do we help one another have love and good works? And if I'm supposed to be a pastor, and this is Jesus's vision, that we're going to be a group of people who are known for love and good works, and I'm supposed to like be about that, and if our elders are supposed to be about that, and if our you know, staff is supposed to be about that. And if, if, if our job is to equip you to do those things, then what kind of stuff should we do? What kinds of things should we teach about? If we're going to be known for love and good works, what should we teach? What should we insist on? What should we encourage in one another? What's interesting is in this passage that was just read, in the book of Titus, the Apostle Paul gives an answer to that question. Paul was an urban missionary, an urban church planter. He would go to these large cities and he would start little pockets of churches. And then he would travel on to other cities and he would write to these churches. And eventually he develops these huge teams and these huge networks that he would lead and coordinate. And he would raise up leaders to be in those churches to help them succeed after he left. Titus was one of those leaders that he had left on the island of Crete to get the church going. And he writes this letter it's in our New Testament called Titus. He writes this letter to this young pastor to let him know the kinds of things he ought to do. 
Jesus wants us to be known for love and good works. So here's what you should focus on, Titus, in your church. And it's kind of interesting. In chapter one, he says, you should appoint some godly men to serve as elders so that they can teach people and so that they can refute those who teach bad stuff. But what things should those men be teaching? And so chapter two, verse one, if you have a Bible, I meant to say this at the beginning. If you have a Bible, uh, Titus chapter two and three is where we're going to be today. It's on page 1058 in the Pew Bible there. Um, if you want to follow along. Titus chapter two, verse one says, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. What stuff though? At the end, chapter two, verse 15, he says, proclaim these things. Chapter three, verse eight, I want you to insist on these things. What stuff? If we're going to be known for love and good works, what should we insist on? What should we focus on? And in chapter two, what he does is he gives some instruction about how we are to treat each other, how we're to love one another. He says, here's what older men are supposed to do and, and older women and younger women and younger men and slaves working for masters. He says to Titus, teach them how to treat one another, teach them how to love one another. And so he gives some behavioral instruction, but here's what he does next. And this is super cool. And it's kind of surprising to me. Here's what he does next. Titus chapter two, verse 11. He has just given them ethics. He's just given them behavior. He's just given them a code of conduct. But now look at the reason he gives for why they should live this way. Titus chapter two, verse 11. Four, here's why. Here's why we insist that we treat one another this way. Here's why. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. What is he doing? He's grounding their behavior in God's grace. He's saying, teach them to live this way, teach them to behave this way because of God's grace. In other words, he grounds what they should do in what God has already done. Do you see that? He says, hey, old men supposed to do this, young men, old women, young women, slaves, masters, here's how everybody's supposed to act. But here's why, because God has acted. God has behaved towards us. And so he's grounding all of the ethics, all of the behavior. He's grounding all of the code of conduct on something God has done, on God's grace, on God's generosity, on God's behavior. For Paul... It's wrong to preach works detached from grace. 
Preaching on works always goes with preaching on grace. Grace is central to everything. Grace is central to everything. Today, we're going to talk about why. And to do it, we're going to see what Paul says to this young pastor in this urban area, trying to figure out how to get a church to be known for love and good works. Paul says, insist on this stuff because of God's grace. So here's what we're going to see today. God's grace is central because of two reasons. God's grace is central because first, God's grace saves us from our sins. God's grace saves us from our sins. And second, God's grace is central because God's grace trains us for good works. So God's grace saves us and trains us. That's what we're going to see. So let's talk about each one of those things. First, God's grace saves us from our sins. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, what does he mean when he says the grace of God has appeared? And this is actually a word that he uses three times in the section that we're looking at today. Look at verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. Uh, in verse 13, he says, we're waiting for this hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See that verse 13? And then do you see uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 4? But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, what is he talking about? The word appeared is the word epiphany. It's when something that was previously unseen becomes seen. Well, when did the grace of God appear? When did the loving kindness of God appear? And the answer is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's grace personified. Jesus came to the earth so that we could know what God is like. You want to know what God is like? You can look at a lot of different things in the world and you can experience glimpses and tastes of the divine. There are a lot of spiritual gurus who can give you a lot of insight about connecting with the divine. But the fullness of divinity rests in Jesus. Jesus came to earth so that we could know what God is like. And in coming, Paul could say, God's grace appeared. John says in John chapter one, you should go read this sometime. We have seen him, that's Jesus, and it's like we were seeing the Father. He was full of grace and truth. 
The grace of God has appeared in Jesus. Have you thought about the fact that Jesus, who is God's son, became a human being? This is a crazy act of grace and generosity. This was not a promotion. It was not like, you get to go to earth now. You get to be a human. Like Jesus was not Pinocchio in heaven. Like, I want to be a real boy. That's not the situation. There has never been a greater demotion than Jesus who is equal with God, taking on the form of a human. It's an act of grace. It's a gift. It's an act of generosity. The one with all strength and status becomes a poor child. The one with all glory becomes a humble servant. The grace of God appeared in Jesus. This is not to say that God was ungracious before. And now all of a sudden in Jesus, he decides to be gracious. Like, well, before Jesus, God hated everybody. But now with Jesus, he's nice, I guess. That's not the situation. The point is that the full measure of grace had never been seen before like this until Jesus showed up on the scene. It is always God's pattern, even in the Old Testament, for his grace to come in order to save his people. He does this with Abraham. Abraham is an idol worshiper. God shows up to him by grace and says, follow me and I'm going to bless you. I am going to bless you. Based on what? Based on my sheer goodness, God says. Based on his grace, God comes and he saves Abraham's family, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Not because they had kept the Ten Commandments. There were no Ten Commandments. He saved them out of Egypt because he loved them. Because he's gracious. And it's not until after he rescues them, after he's already shown his grace, that he even gives them any rules to keep. God has always been gracious, but his grace appeared like you could touch it in Jesus. Jesus came to earth and lived up to all of God's righteous requirements. We call this his active obedience. Jesus fulfilled God's commands for us. And then Jesus took God's penalty for sins for us by dying on the cross. Paul references this in verse 14. He says, he, that's Jesus, gave himself for us. The little phrase gave himself up, gave himself up for us is a reference to his crucifixion. He gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. In this little verse, 
Paul's showing us God is doing for the whole world now in Jesus what he once did for the Israelites in Egypt. John Stott says, Jesus is our Passover, our Exodus, and our Sinai. He gave himself for us. This is a reference to the sacrifice he made at Passover, the new Passover. He did it to redeem us, to set us free from sin's power and tyranny in our lives. And he did it to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession who are eager to do good works, just like he did at Sinai. God is orchestrating a new exodus in Jesus. It's not that God did not used to be gracious and now he is. It's that he's always been gracious. He's just doing it in the most brilliant way you can imagine now in Jesus. If you thought the story of Exodus was a big demonstration of his grace, look at Jesus, Paul's saying. Jesus came to earth, lived in our place, and died in our place so that we can be saved from our sins. He is redeeming us. He's buying us back from all lawlessness and he's cleaning us up so that we can be a people who do good works. Now, remember the context of these verses. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. What's the context for Paul writing all of this stuff? He's telling Titus why people ought to live a certain way. He's giving us the grounds for ethics, the grounds for good behavior, the grounds for a code of conduct. He's saying, You should do good to people and love people. You should be known for love and good works. Why? Because when you were sinful, when you were unloving and full of evil works, look what God did for you. For Paul. It is wrong to preach works detached from grace. Preaching on works always goes with preaching on grace. And Paul follows this exact same pattern now in chapter three. So he's just grounded everything he said in chapter two on God's grace. Then he says, verse 15, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Then he gets to chapter three. And now he's going to give some more instruction about how they ought to live. This time, not with each other, but with society. And we're going to talk more in depth about these two verses next week. But for right now, all we need to see is that he's giving more instruction about how we ought to live. He's giving more ethics. This is what Christians are supposed to do. Look at what he says. Chapter three, verse one. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Those would be great verses for us to meditate on as we think about how to interact with the world around us. But then look at what he does. 
So he says, here's how you're supposed to live. Here's the ethic. Be kind, be gentle, be respectful, be obedient to authorities. Verse three. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. He says, the qualities that we were supposed to have in verses one and two, we didn't have. You notice that? I mean, the quali- what he says in verse three is refuting all the stuff he said in verses one and two. He's like, here's what, we were, here's what we're supposed to do, Christians. We're supposed to be obedient, kind, do good stuff. But here's what we naturally do. We're foolish and disobedient. That means literally the word is stupid, silly, uninformed. We refuse to listen and obey. We're deceived and enslaved by this sinful desires in us. We're led astray. We wander like sheep who go off the path is the imagery of the word. We're malicious and envious. We want to do evil for people. We're supposed to treat them with kindness, but we kind of like when bad things happen to people we don't like. We're hateful and detesting. You see what he's saying? He's saying we were the opposite of what we're supposed to be. How do we get out of this graceless existence? We're supposed to be this way, but we all know, okay, but that stuff's hard and we're not. How are we ever going to do any of that stuff? Verse four. But when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, verse five, he saved us. The source of our salvation from sin, that is our, our being set free from the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sins, and our ability to escape the corruption of sin and its power over us. Our salvation from sin comes not from a list of rules and ethics and behaviors that we're supposed to do. It comes from God. Paul uses four words to describe God's character, his heart towards sinners. Look at verse four. He says the kindness of God and verse four, his love for mankind. And verse five, according to his mercy, verse seven, we've been justified by his grace. Those are four words that describe God's heart towards sinners. And those are the same words that show up in Ephesians chapter two that we looked at two weeks ago. I mean, this is consistent across the whole scriptures. This is consistent. He's kind and loving and merciful and gracious towards sinners. Salvation originates in the heart of God. 
And then notice the grounds for our salvation. He says, verse five, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done. We are to be known for love and good works. But those are not what save us because we don't have enough of them. He saved us from our sins, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Look at verse seven. So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. The grounds for our salvation is not our righteousness. It is Christ's. The word justified in verse seven means to officially be declared righteous, to officially be declared as good, to officially receive credit for having good works. Think about what Paul's saying. He's saying that we are declared good by grace. We're declared good, not because of good stuff we do. We are declared good because of good stuff that has been done for us in Jesus. Christ's record counts for us. We live vicariously through him. Christ's payment for sin counts for us. We die vicariously with him at the cross and Christ's life becomes our life. And this is the hope of glory. The hope of glory is not, you better be good so that someday you can live forever in a glorious existence. The hope of glory, verse 13 of chapter two, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ, our hope is his glory because he is our life. He is our reward. So our hope for glory is in Jesus Christ, Titus 2, 13 and Chapter three, verse seven, we have become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Based on what? Based on you and your love and good works? No, based on Christ and his love and his good works. And the way that all of these benefits that Christ has won, the way that all of them come to us is through the Holy Spirit. He tells us in verse six, uh, verse five, all of this happens through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Christians are Trinitarians. That is, we believe that there is one God who eternally and simultaneously exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each of these three persons of the Godhead is active in our salvation. The Father planned our salvation. The Son, Jesus, accomplished our salvation. He's the one who appeared. And the Spirit applies our salvation. The Spirit takes what Jesus has done and he applies it to us. He brings it to us. He, the Holy Spirit is the one who connects us, who unites us with 
Jesus so that Jesus's life can become our life. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's the role of the Holy Spirit is to connect people to Jesus. And here Paul describes that as the Holy Spirit gave us a bath. He washed us. Do you have some sinful things that need cleansing in your life? Do you know where you find that? It's not by being extra, extra, extra sorry for what you've done. It's not by promising and swearing, this time I swear on my mother's grave, I'm going to do better. The only way the blood comes off your hands is with the washing of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit connects you with what Christ has done for you. And he says, the Holy Spirit doesn't just clean you up. He makes you new. He uses two synonyms. He says, the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and renewal refer to new life. Jesus only used this word. It's the only other time it shows up in the New Testament, the word regeneration. He only used it once. He used it to refer to what will happen at the end of time when he returns. He's going to remake the earth. He's going to make all things new. Here, Paul uses it and he applies it to the Christian, the one who is in Christ, the one who has faith in Christ. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that God's power at the end of time at the renewal of all things, is breaking through into the present. It's not fully here yet, but it's breaking into the present now in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who can connect you to it, who can toss you into the stream. In Christ, we don't just become good, we become new. New creations, dead people who have become alive again. And the fruit of this salvation is good works. So, do you see what this means? Why does grace need to be central in our message? If we want to be known for love and good works in the world, why does grace need to be central? Because it is God's grace that saves us from our sins. And do you see what this means? It means that when we preach on works, it always goes with preaching on grace. Teaching someone what they ought to do should never be detached from what God has done. Our message is not, you better do something great for God. Our message is, God has done something great for you. Now receive it by faith. Our symbol is not a ladder. Here's all the things you've got to do. Here's all the ethical code. Here's the code of conduct that you better keep to work your way to God. Our message is not a ladder. It is a cross. The work is done. Something has happened for you. That's our message. 
And so what does this mean? How should we teach? I remember growing up in uh, kids' classes, and once I got to be older uh, and I got to start serving in the kids' classes, um, the curriculum that we used always had like a, a virtue of the month. This week we're teaching kids to be kind. Bible verse about kindness. Here's a story from the Old Testament about somebody who was kind. And make sure you have a story about Jesus and how he's kind too. And let's all be like these biblical characters. And that's fine. First Corinthians 10 says that these things are written as examples for us. So there's certainly a place for that. But the point of the story of Abraham is not be just like Abraham. The point of the story of Moses is not be just like Moses. It's not be just like David. Have you read their stories? Like what qualities do you want to emulate? The majority of the Bible are these characters who are total screw ups, even worse than you. <laughs> what is the point? It's not primarily to be like them. Although there are things certainly we can learn from them and we can emulate their faith. But the point is primarily to trust the God who is gracious, even to sinners like them. I think about student ministry. And it always concerned me. What are kids going to walk away from our church thinking? What was if they were going to summarize, like, what matters to the church people, what would they say? Is it a list of things that they shouldn't do? Don't have sex with your girlfriend. Don't go to parties once you get to college. Make sure you, you know, always have a designated driver. Always make sure you check the, you know... What's the primary thing that they should walk away with? We fail students if we send them off to college with a list of behaviors detached from a message of grace. If they go to college thinking the church taught me not to sleep with my girlfriend without being taught that God has grace for sinners who sleep with their girlfriend, we failed. And that doesn't, that, here's what, what happens is, a legalist comes along and says, well, wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. If you preach grace like that, here's what's going to happen. They're just all going to go around and do all of these nasty, terrible, evil things. So don't be too loud about the grace. Be louder about the rules because we want to keep them out of trouble. And that is the opposite of what Paul is doing. The apostle Paul thinks like this. If you do not preach grace, they won't have any power whatsoever to overcome sin and they will be damned forever. That's how the apostle Paul thinks. So the apostle Paul is grounding his teaching, his teaching about proper behavior on the message of grace. Why should the message of grace be central in our churches? First, because God's grace saves us from our sins. And now for the second reason. 
because God's grace trains us for good works. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, instructing us. Instructing us. The word instructing is a word that refers to raising a child. It refers to training a pet. Paul says that grace has become our trainer. It has become our teacher. I wonder if grace is always my teacher. Is grace your teacher? Here's what grace trains us to do. Verse 12. It instructs us, it's training us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts. Now, how does that work? How does grace train us to deny godlessness? What does it mean to deny something? What does it mean to be godless? To deny means to to disown, to be disloyal to something. And godlessness is being disloyal to God. It's what's contrary to the way of God. It's a word that was used of Christians in Rome. They were godless. That is, they didn't, uh, they weren't loyal to the emperor. Paul's using that word and he's saying, grace teaches you to deny being disloyal to God. How does that work? And here's how it works. If God is a God of grace, then the deeper you go into grace, the more you become like God. And the more that you leave grace behind, the more that you leave God behind. Grace is actually the trainer that teaches us how to do good works. It teaches us what to disown, what to deny, and it teaches us how to live, how to pass our time. Look at the rest of verse 12. And to live. It teaches us to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Grace trains us to be like God. If you want to be like Jesus, go deeper into his grace. And then look at what he says in verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here, what Paul is doing is he's positioning the Christian life as a looking backwards and a looking forwards. You remember in Psalm chapter one, you can go read this. Psalm chapter one says, here's the person who walks according to the way of the world. He he meditates day and night on God's word. Paul's picking up that same idea here. 
He's saying the Christian learns to walk with God. The Christian learns to be loving and do good works. The Christian learns to do that by orienting their mind to something that has appeared in the past and something that will appear in the future. God's grace has appeared in Jesus. God's glory will appear in Jesus when he returns. And it's by standing in between what has happened and what will happen and looking back to Christ and looking forward to Christ that we actually learn how to live. God's grace trains us. Our whole lives are to be a response to Christ's first and second coming. This is how we learn obedience. This is the same thing that Jesus taught in Mark chapter 8. When he said, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to the cross. And if you want to be my follower, then here's what you've got to do. Deny yourself. What does he say here, verse 12? Oh, deny godlessness and worldly lusts. Okay. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. That is, it's going to feel like suffering. You're going to miss out on some stuff. Take up your cross and follow me. But what did Jesus ground that teaching in? The fact that he was taking up a cross and he would also be taken up in glory after he endured the cross. And Jesus and Paul are on the same page. Here's how you learn to live in a way that loves others and does good works. Is you start to orient your mind to Jesus to his first coming and his second coming. We'll expand on this, like I said, next week, but he gives some instructions in chapter three about what this looks like. He says, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities to obey and to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Why are those the qualities? that Paul highlights. Maybe because those are the qualities that we find in Jesus. So, why should grace be central in the teaching of the church? Because God's grace saves us from our sins and God's grace trains us for good works. So how do you go deeper into grace to learn obedience and good works? First, make sure that you understand that the message of grace is not just for becoming a Christian. It's for being a Christian. If when you hear grace come up or the word gospel come up and you immediately think this is for someone else, you're already wrong, but there's grace for you. (laughs) Just embrace the grace. The gospel, that is the message of what Jesus has done for us in his life, his death and his resurrection. 
The gospel is not just for becoming a Christian. It's not just for non-Christians. It's for Christians. We don't graduate from it. Christian ethics, Christian behavior, Christian conduct is grounded in grace. So if you want to go deeper in grace, first, you've got to be convinced of that point. But here's how I think God most normally works to help us grow in grace. It's through things called the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace are things that on the surface, it's like, yeah, I already know that. What else you got? That's why they're ordinary. And yet these are the ways that God meets us to help us grow in grace. The ordinary means of grace are prayer. Prayer. Prayer is communing with God. It's talking to God and listening for him. We listen primarily through his word. He has spoken. And as we go to God in prayer, what we over time do is we begin to remind ourselves, oh yeah, I need God. That is grace. You don't pray if you can do it by yourself. You've got too much stuff to do for you to waste time praying And if you're responsible for your life, you won't pray. Prayer is a practice where we begin to orient our lives to the fact that we need God's grace. We need God to do stuff that we can't do for ourselves. This is why as a church, we want to be known for persistent prayer. It's why we have a time of prayer in our gathering. It's why we've started once a month prayer gatherings is we want to try and create time to just pray to seek God. It's a means of grace. Another ordinary means of grace is the word. The word read, the word preached, the word memorized, the word rehearsed, the word meditated on. As we get God's word in our lives, it's a means by which God grows us in his grace. It's a means by which our minds begin to be renewed by grace. Gathered worship, what we're doing right now, this is an ordinary means of grace. What we're doing when we sing together is we're, ge- we're reminding one another that there is something more real than the world that we live throughout the normal life. And that's not to create some kind of weird divide between secular and religious, or that's not the point of what I'm saying. I'm saying we gather to remind ourselves that God is ushering us up. He's bringing us up into this eternal fellowship that exists with himself. And we get to be part of that in Christ. When we sing that first song, there is is singing at the ancient gates. There's a melody of endless praise. We're reminding ourselves, wait a minute. This is not all there is here on the earth. There is something greater. That's a means of grace. It's lifting our eyes up. When we sing the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come, we're reminding ourselves, oh yeah, this thing I'm, fr- I'm stressed about, it's not been here forever. 
and it won't be here forever. And so let's get our eyes on something eternal. Another ordinary means of grace, and we're not going to do it today, but is the Lord's Supper. We come to the table and we remind ourselves and one another, Jesus makes it possible for us to be here in the presence of a holy God. So how do we grow in grace? I think it's ordinary means of grace. If you want help walking through, how do you practice those things in your life? That would be a great thing to discuss in your community group this week. That would be a great thing to just grab the person around you after this service and say, hey, let's talk about that. Let's set up a time to talk about how could we start to weave the ordinary means of grace into our lives. There's lots of cool wisdom to be learned about that. So God's grace should be central in our church and in our life because it saves us from sin and trains us for good works. Next week, we'll look even more at some of the good works that it trains us for. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you that your grace has appeared. God, I ask that your spirit would be active now. God, help me to believe in your grace. God, help us to trust in it, to rest in it. Help us to have ears and eyes to hear and see how your grace might train us so that we can walk in good works. God, I pray that we would be a group of people who are known for our love for one another and for our good works. And I pray that as a result of this, that people would come to glorify you. It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?